You're listening to Seattle Sports Saturday with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs on 710 ESPN Seattle. Good morning to you. He's Taylor Jacobs. I'm Curtis Rogers. Like Big Voice Guy said, this is Seattle Sports Saturday. show they have the guts to produce right here on 710 ESPN Seattle. Yeah. Very few will go where we go today. I mean, we're going to go back to Thursday night for a lot of what we're talking about here as the Seahawks pick up a huge, huge divisional victory over the Arizona Cardinals, 28-21. And then also today, plenty of, well, Pac-12 headlines, but some that are throwing a serious wrench into a lot of people's Thanksgiving week plans, especially here in the state of Washington. Uh, A lot of questions as to whether or not the 2020 Apple Cup will happen, uh, whether it will happen as scheduled or just happen at all. We'll get into that here later this morning. But, Taylor, Seahawks get that huge win over the Cardinals, and it's Saturday. You don't have the impending doom of having to worry about Sunday and, and what's on the docket for the Seahawks. Feels good going into the weekend, already knowing what the Seahawks have accomplished, and they can kind of kick back tomorrow. Yeah, and it's it's scoreboard watching time for Seahawks fans, which is the best feeling. You got a mini bye week almost. You get a few days off. You don't have to pay attention to, you know, or get ramped up for that Seahawks game on Sunday. Take it easy. Heart rate low. Keep the blood pressure low. And then get ready because uh, the following week against the Eagles, right, could be could be one of their toughest games left, even though it's not that difficult. But you look at the rest of the schedule down the stretch, and this team could make a serious run. We'll talk about that a little bit more in depth next hour. But uh, the Seahawks feel like they're on the verge of something big here, Curtis. And uh, the defense might be the start of that whole entire uh, process. Yeah, that defense on, on Thursday night was just – it was a marvel to watch, which I think is more so because of what we have seen them do this season or or better – I should say it better, what they haven't done this season. That's really stop anybody. They go out and stop probably the best offense that they're going to face the rest of the season. You know, these Arizona Cardinals, number one in rushing coming into Thursday night – You have Kyler Murray, DeAndre Hopkins, Larry Fitzgerald, just an incredible passing attack that they have there. And by and large, the Seahawks not only kept them in check, but really gave Kyler some fits on Thursday night. And and just can can this performance, what we saw on Thursday, can it be propelled forward later on into the rest of the season? Because, like you mentioned, Taylor, the upcoming slate of games, and we're going to get into this uh, in the 11 o'clock hours, especially very, very favorable for the Seahawks to where, I'll I'll come out and say it, anything less than 11-3 and after this four-game stretch here, I'm going to be very disappointed in. Yeah, it, it feels like, again, we'll go through the games in the next hour, but... The run, the possibility of the run is there. You got the NFC least, the New York teams. You got the Washington football unnamed squad. There feels like a lot of potential. You got a 49ers practice team at the end of the year. The Rams, <laughs> you know, who knows what they're going to be playing for at that point as well. So that game, a little bit of question, but we'll, you know, we'll dive into each matchup a little bit more in depth in the next hour. But yeah, we got to talk about this Thursday game, Curtis, because there were some big moments, some big players and a big-time win for the Seahawks organization. Absolutely. So, I mean, we're talking big. No better time now than to get into this hour's Big Three.
number one. That's what we call a transition, folks. And Seahawks <laughs> pulling off that primetime victory like we've been talking about over the Cardinals, 28-21. A uh, unconventional 28 points with the safety thrown in there, the missed PAT, but a lot of this all due to a strong defense that showed up on Thursday. A lot of the 12s still in awe on what they saw from that defense, truly limiting Kyler Murray. Now we know he hurt his uh, shoulder, but also on the ground, he wasn't able to really get out of the pocket and make those big-time plays like you saw in that first matchup between these two. Also able to limit DeAndre Hopkins to only five catches for 51 yards. A pretty great performance by Trey Flowers. He had the one mistake for the big catch. But other than that, playing up tight on the on the, the line of scrimmage on Hopkins, able to run with him. Christian Kirk also limited in their production. But this was a tale of the Carlos show on, on Thursday for Seattle. Carlos Hyde. Yes, he only had 70 yard, 79 yards rushing. A little bit of a tongue twister. But his impact was huge. The run game truly opened it up for the pass game, for Russell to be efficient. 23 of 28, two TDs. Almost three if you hadn't thrown that Randy Johnson fastball right into DK Metcalf's binky. But uh, now, like we said, they get the mini bye week. Don't have to play till November 30th. And we'll talk about all the things they'll be thinking about until that game. Number two. We're still a week away from the Apple Cup, but is it in serious doubt? Well, the Cougs, they had to cancel their game today against Stanford because they didn't have enough players available to make the trip to the Bay Area to take on Stanford. That includes starting quarterback Jaden Delora, who reportedly did test positive for COVID-19 this week. And because of contact tracing and the Pac-12's COVID protocols, Wazoo might not be able to field a team of at least 53 players by the time next Friday rolls around. In the meantime, UW, they will square off against Arizona, bear down, later tonight at 5 o'clock on Fox. The Huskies able to get by Oregon State in their season opener season opener last Saturday despite a rocky start to the evening. Wildcats, they were picked to finish last in the Pac-12 this season, so it should be Washington's for the taking. Coming up at 10.30, we will discuss what a canceled Apple Cup would mean for the conference and also take a look at what the Huskies are up against against Arizona later today. But yeah, Apple Cup 2020, who knows if that one is going to be able to get going next Friday. Number three. Well, before Thursday's game... We had some big Seahawks breaking news, but nothing on the field, literally just the field itself. CenturyLink Field, a.k.a. the Clink, will be no more effective immediately. Stadium will be now called Lumen Field to reflect a rebranding of CenturyLink to Lumen Technologies. The name is pending approval, was pending approval until late Thursday by the Washington State Public Stadium Authority. This is the fourth name change. Of course, everyone remembers Seahawks Stadium moving on to Quest Field, then from Quest to CenturyLink, and now CenturyLink to Lumen. But Curtis, you tweeted this out, and now uh, an interesting stat. Seahawks 3-1 in games after a name change. For the 750 stadium. win percentage. They should change the name every week if that's how it's going to be. Yeah, I, I, I like that. And if they can keep that up. Maybe maybe it's due for a change once a year. Maybe the Rams game or the Cardinals game, they can switch it up. Feels like a good strategy, but signage already in play, the process of changing over. 
should be completed by 2021. And of course, the Sounders FC playing playing there too. They'll be playing on the Lumen Field. And uh, yeah, the new name officially unveiled. What do you think, Curtis? You a fan? Uh, I I'll say this: the the pun possibilities for Lumen Field much greater than it was with CenturyLink Field. I'll say I'll oh, say yeah. that. And that's that's the most important thing. <laughs> When it comes to this stadium name, is how many jokes can be named or can be made at the expense of the new name? Right, you have the easy ones, the layups, you know, all the uh, the lights, the lumens, yeah. all you know, the light bulbs. Mm-hmm. Then you have the more you know complex ones, Curtis. I saw you tweeting about the Illuminati. Like those yeah. are some fun ones you can play. Keep with, that third too, eye right? open. Exactly, we always do. Uh, Thanks, Joe Rogan. Yeah. <laughs> but that is this hour's big three here on Seattle Sports Saturday. Some honorable mentions. Uh, we're going to get into the NBA draft a little bit later uh, in the 11 o'clock hour. But from a local standpoint, a lot of Northwest love uh, being shown throughout the draft. Uh, Isaiah Stewart, the first player from this area taken, Husky forward. He gets drafted 16th overall, traded to the Detroit Pistons. Uh, when you think Detroit Pistons, like, physicality and that kind of body type, you obviously think of guys like Isaiah Stewart, so that's a good fit right there. And then Jaden McDaniels, I think what it probably comes as a surprise to a lot of people who watched the Huskies a year ago that he would be drafted in the first round because i got to be honest, he was a bit of a disappointment. The expectations did not meet the the results that we saw for the Huskies last year, but McDaniel still gets drafted in the first round, late first round pick number 28. Overall, he was traded to the Minnesota Timberwolves and then Taylor, your guy, Coog CJ Ellaby oh, yeah. staying Woo. in the Northwest. He gets drafted by the Portland trailblazers in the second round. Uh, former Coog Malachi Flynn. He gets drafted as well. Uh, so plenty of Northwest love being shown should be, uh, you know, I mean, it's great that, these guys are getting drafted, but uh, if the Northwest is producing talent, you'd think they'd be able to, uh, you know, put a team here. But what's going on, NBA? We're, we're waiting. Also, we, local we got a brand-new arena going up. Oh. Right. Uh, Joe Harris, Lake Chelan. That's right. Lake Chelan, as the fancy people say, getting that four-year, $75 million deal. So shout-out to the pride of Lake Chelan. I know Brent Stecker, big fan. So, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you got a shout-out, another local product, get, getting paid. Absolutely. And then a big day, a uh, big birthday in the Seattle sports community. Oh, yes. That'd be the kid, King Griffey Jr., Kenneth. 51 years old. Uh, one of the great, I guess, birthdays on the sports calendar because you've got him and Stan Musial, uh, Cardinals legend, both birthdays today, also both born in the same town of Denora, Pennsylvania. Wild how oh. that town, not really known for anything else, produced two of the greatest baseball players of all time. Wow, I had no idea. That's a that's a uh, keep that for your trivia teams. All right, just keep yeah. that store that in there. That's a fun fact. That's what we like to it call is. A fun fact. We're all we're we're full of fun facts. We're also full. Of other things, too, but we'll not get into that here. But <laughs> coming up later on in this one, uh, 1030, we're going to talk about what a canceled Apple Cup might mean for the Pac-12, if that indeed does happen, uh, heading into next week, because we're just about a week away from the Apple Cup. We're actually less than a week away from the Apple Cup. We've got six days to figure this out. We'll tell you what that means coming up at 1030. But up next, did Thursday represent the end of letting Russ cook? We'll discuss that next here on Seattle Sports Saturday. 
Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs on 710 ESPN Seattle. Make sure you're joining in on the conversation. The Busy Heart Seltzer text line there for you, 710-710. And if you want to listen to this show or any show, you can do it on the 710 Sports app that is powered by the Dubin Law Group. Coming up in this hour, we take a look at Seattle's defense, whether or not the performance we saw from them on Thursday night can be propelled forward. And looking at their schedule, there's going to be plenty of opportunities to do so. Uh, That's coming your way in about 20, 25 minutes from now. But he's Taylor Jacobs. I'm Curtis Rogers. And, And Taylor... One thing that really stood out to me, and I think has stood out to plenty of people uh, across Seahawks fandom and in the NFL world, is how Seattle got back to the formula that has made them probably the NFC's most consistent team over the last decade, and that is running the ball, and that is getting after the quarterback, and it's not, and it's holding on to the football. They had no turnovers on Thursday night, but it, it that formula has, I think, caused a lot of headaches among Seahawks fans for, I guess, how safe it is, how conservative it is, and how it doesn't fully take advantage of Russell Wilson's talents and capabilities. But the result of Thursday night, no one can argue with. That is about as complete of a victory as Seattle has had this season. When you look at what Seattle was able to accomplish on Thursday and how different of a route they took to get there compared to the season's first half. Do you think that kind of signals a change in how they're going to go about the rest of the season offensively, at least? I think that the answer truly is no, because if they were healthy, this is how they would want to be playing with Russell Wilson still doing the things that he's doing. Ideally, Chris Carson would be in there, right? Taking these carries, He's physical. He can get those extra yards. How many times have Seahawks fans said down on the goal line or a third and two, like, man, would love to have Chris Carson in this situation. So that's the start. Chris Carson sets up the pass. The run game establishes those opportunities for Russell Wilson to go out there and make the great throws, go deep to lock it. You know, find DK Metcalf in space and let him, you know, shake Patrick Peterson into 2016. Um, you, 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 that's where the offense truly excels. And that has been, and I think that it will continue to be. They needed Russ to quote unquote cook because they couldn't run the ball. They had to establish the run in different ways, essentially, the quote-unquote run. Get the tight ends a little bit more involved. Get those short intermediate routes going, because they couldn't trust those running backs quite as much as they could with Hyde or with Carson. So to me, it it, it is the end of the quote-unquote letting Russ cook, only in the sense that they need him to cook all of this stuff for everyone. This is back to letting Russ be the Gordon Ramsay, let him prepare the menu, execute, show some of these things. Let him be that expediter, making sure the plate looks great before it goes out. That's what his role in the kitchen is now. And I think that's where this team will truly excel is having that run game set up the pass. It kind of reminds me, and, and to use another cooking analogy here, as, as everyone knows, I'm a huge Guy yeah. Fieri fan. Oh, I, love I, him. I take up residence in Flavortown all all the time. 
That's out of bounds, It is. You could put that on a flip-flop. It reminds me on Guy's Grocery Games when they have those challenges where it's like you can only use four ingredients to make your food. And that's kind of what Russell Wilson was having to do for that portion of of the season where Chris Carson was out after the first Arizona game through the Rams game. And then I think the Cardinals game kind of represented – where where guys like all right you can have free reign throughout the story use whatever you want you've got no limits to your spending whatever and it made for a much more complete meal it wasn't just you know uh, it wasn't just a main you had some side dishes in there as well and, and Carlos Hyde uh, he really gave the Seahawks an incredible effort on the ground that night I mean just in total the the run game as a whole it wasn't just Carlos Hyde Bo Scarborough who, you know, a lot of people had no idea who he was coming into this game, uh, or at least remember him from his days at Alabama. But, you know, he he gave some good runs here and there. Uh, That was the best I've seen Seattle's run game look, you know, this season, maybe even in games that Chris Carson was involved in. Um, And then you look at the run game, there's still the, the possibility that Rashad Penny comes back within the next couple of weeks. And all of a sudden, you're going to have a, a healthy Carlos Hyde, a healthy Chris Carson. Hopefully, he'll be able to go in this Monday night game. You know, he gets about 10 days off between the Arizona game and the Philadelphia game. So it's a, basically a second bye. And then Rashad Penny, who I think a lot of people kind of looked to at, at one point last year as sort of, all right, this guy's kind of the heir apparent to Chris Carson here. All of a sudden now, you've got more weapons than you know what to do with. And I think that is going to be. Uh, enriching for this Seahawks offense as they go up against four consecutive games here where the opponents are pretty dang inferior to what the Seahawks are. And and let's not forget about what Russell Wilson did this game with just Carlos Hyde, right? 25 of 28, but one was, again, the Randy Johnson fastball to the binky. So that's a touchdown. You had two throwaways, so there are your passes right there. And then you had the one pass to DK Metcalf called back on the bogus Damian Lewis penalty where he just unfortunately got destroyed on the play so bad the guy thought it was a penalty. So, (laughs) uh, look, if you add all those things together, you're talking about 300-plus yards from Russell, three touchdowns, and again, two passes incomplete only because they were throwaways. So... If that's not cooking, if that's not Russell at his best, I don't know what is. And that, again, all started with Carlos Hyde being able to establish the mentality that this team can run on you. And that also takes the pressure off Russell. He doesn't have to force those throws. Ten interceptions on the season. That's uncharacteristic for Russell. But he's been forced to do it. The guy's grocery. You, you forced him to cook, you know, a beautiful lamb dinner with marshmallows and, and you know, <laughs> Kool-Aid. You know what I mean? You gave him some yeah. crap ingredients and you forced him to do these things, unfortunately. And this is what you got. You got a 10 interception. It's not pretty. Yes, it's you won some of those games. You lost some of those games, too. But. That's what you were forced to see. Now it's like you got the whole pantry. You got the whole kitchen. You got every tool you could need, and you're going to keep getting more and more of this. We're going to give you help as the competition goes along. Oh, and by the way, the people you're cooking against are some 
some teenage kids who just found out what to do with with a piece of steak. Like that's the competition you get with New York and Washington and the teams left on the schedule. So to keep it in the kitchen, um, I would be completely confident that this team is heading towards a, a nice Michelin star rating by the end of the year. Text in your best Kool-Aid marshmallow lamb recipes to the Vizzy Heart yeah, you... text line 710-710. I got a feeling it's going to look like a Buffalo Bills Seahawks game. That's what it's going to look Ooh. and taste a whole lot like. I don't I don't want any of that. I don't want any of that at all. Uh, but, hey, if you can fix something up uh, that, you know, maybe try it at the Thanksgiving table on Thursday. Who knows? Although, you know, hopefully you don't ruin any family friendships along the way. But <laughs> That's true. Pe- <laughs> Pete Carroll, he spoke all week leading up to Thursday night about needing a better mix offensively, uh, and he definitely emphasized the run when he was talking about that from about Monday following the Rams game to Thursday night, and I I think they did achieve that. Now, will they run it now in ways that we saw a year ago or, or really any of the last eight years where... It's an obvious passing situation, and they do run-run pass, as we've seen all along. I think the best part about Russell Wilson's start to the season and how he was able to put the team on, on his right arm so often is that he showed the the you know play callers, Brian Schottenheimer, Pete Carroll, that, hey, if need be, if, you, if the running game is not there, do not hesitate to hand it over to me. I can get us a victory more often than not. And I mean, six and three when Russell Wilson was quote unquote cooking. I mean, that's winning sixty six percent of your games. I mean, that's a win, obviously, more often than not. And we're heading into the portion of a schedule where you know, hey, they're going to be eleven and three here. Hopefully, you know, knock on wood. But I think Russ did show that, hey, if you need to put this game in my hands, it, it I will get you there more often than not. Yeah, and I think you bring up a great point about Shoddy, right? He's been calling some great, great, unique, diverse offensive play calls uh, for the past 10 weeks and in in this entire season so far. And you've seen him mix in some plays, maybe other than the bubble screens in the fourth or that awkward toss play that they Ooh. did in this last game. <laughs> which is just a weird play call in, in general, um, you're seeing it's not just the run, run, pass, run, run, pass. You're seeing a run, pass, pass, a run, run, run. You're seeing a lot of the different varieties, and it's successful, and it's keeping defenses on their toes. A lot of defenses have struggled. The only teams that have really been comfortable, other than the Bills mishap, has been division rivals, right? The teams that you see year in and year out multiple times were the only teams comfortable with some of the things they saw against the Seahawks. Everyone else has not been good with it because they were able to win six games before, or pardon me, while he was cooking. So I think Shoddy deserves some credit in empowering Russell to, to be that player. And when they need to call on him, they know they can get those results. It's been a fantastic effort from everyone, and I just think, again, heading into this easier part of the schedule, getting more players back healthy, getting those stables of players back so you can rotate them in and keep them fresh for the playoffs, it's hard to look around the NFC and see a team as deep as the Seahawks if they get to that full, healthy part of the season they want to get to. 
when you look at the next four games, which I think everybody has had circled on, on the Seahawks schedule since it was released back in the springtime, Philly, New York, both New York teams, and Washington, all four of those teams are well below 500. Do you think there's any of those games that will need Russell Wilson to throw for more than 30 times in, at all? Because I look at those and I don't see anyone where it's like, yeah, the Seahawks are going to have a really tough time getting it going. Uh, maybe the Philadelphia one, I think that could be the toughest of these four, but I don't see any of them, at least at face value, where Russ is going to need to throw it more than 30 times a game. Yeah, and look, I don't think any of the t- – look, they're not going to overlook any of these games. They all think one week at a time. There's always the cliche, well, I bet if you ask the player, they had no idea who they're playing in two weeks. Well, they probably do, but they just don't talk about it. They don't think about the Giants. But, yeah, you, you, you look down these rosters and the Giants struggling with injuries, the Jets struggling with identity. Who are the Jets? Washington, like what's happening there from the start first week to now is a, a night and day team. Yes, they've actually had some good um, defensive outputs, and I think their secondary actually ranks in the top five this season. But, Curtis, I agree with you. Until the Rams game, I don't see Russell, the team needing to lean on Russell. They can get by with their depth. And so then you're talking about 11 wins? And then you're talking about two more games for the rest of the season with your divisional rivals. And I like those odds at potentially getting to a 12-13 win season. Potentially a number one seed. I mean, that's the stuff of champions. And that's how you make a run to the Super Bowl. Coming up, uh, we're going to get back to this Seahawks conversation about 10:45. We looked at the offense just now. We're going to look at the defense. Can they propel their effort from Thursday forward going into the rest of the regular season? But up next, Apple Cup 2020 in serious doubt next week. What would a canceled Apple Cup mean for the Pac-12? We talk that next here on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs on 710 ESPN Seattle. About a half hour from now, we'll get you a big three. Also take a look at some of the early slate of college football action around the NCAA this morning. Taylor Jacobs and Curtis Rogers here with you. He's Taylor. I'm Curtis. Uh, Hello. We've got, yeah, hello. Nice nice to make your acquaintance here. But, yeah, seriously, shout out to you for choosing us to be a part of your morning. We do truly appreciate it. If you miss any of today's show, make sure you're downloading the podcast, 710sports.com. Click on the On Demand tab. We'll be there for you, as well as every other show uh, at 710 ESPN Seattle, right there at your fingertips. But we're the home of the Cougs here on 710, and... I mean, you look at the just the craziness of this Pac-12 schedule and how just getting a single game off feels like an accomplishment for all teams. Like last week when Arizona played after getting their game canceled, as an alum, I only cared that the game was played. I didn't really care about the outcome because, A, Wildcats are terrible, uh, and B, like, look – it is such an effort to get a single game off and we're going to, you know, with the Cougs having their game today canceled against Stanford. And now there's serious questions about whether or not they'll be able to field a team of 53 going up against the Huskies next week for the apple cup. I mean, 
it just you, you wonder at what point is this all worth it for the Pac-12. But Taylor, you being the coog among us here, a canceled Apple Cup just that is just the worst case scenario I think for this college football season, at least from a Kook and Husky perspective, because there really isn't much more for these schools or really any school in the Pac-12 to play for other than bragging rights over your opponent. And and a canceled Apple Cup, I I mean, having no quote-unquote dog in the fight still would not sit well with me. But for you and being a a Kook alum, what would a canceled Apple Cup mean to you? I mean... The worst. It's truly devastating. It would be, again, another low of this year, uh, just sports lows. There's plenty of life lows in this year, but a, a sports yeah. low. And, and um, yeah, it's just – I have nothing – it's like one of those parents – when the parents say they're not mad, they're just disappointed. Like, I'm not mad at anyone. I'm just so disappointed that, you know, this is where the Pac-12 is. There is no backup plan. There is no sort of structure from the up, the upper echelon of the Pac-12 conference that the schools truly feel like they're on their own. And there's no there's it just sort of speaks volumes of where the Pac-12 is. There's no co- there's no cohesiveness between the teams, the presidents, the conference. It's disjointed. It's it's all over the place and it just feels like it's so disappointing for it to continue. And this be another example of that. Look, people are going to get sick. We knew that when they started saying that the games were going to come back this year, right? We knew that some of those risks were going to be taken. They're going to do as much as they can to minimize those risks, but you can't, you can't completely null them out. And unfortunately there was no real in-depth plan from anyone you saw it even with stanford with davis mills right and his tests and how they were handled and what his performance looked like when he got held out for false negative or false positives and and then he struggled and then this was going to be his first game truly with the weeks of practice and then now it's canceled so the ripple effect isn't just here in washington right it's through the whole conference it's through all of these players and again just a beacon. It's illumin, illuminated onto Larry Scott and his struggles and the reasons why the, the conference needs to. It's not even consider anymore. They need to move on from Larry Scott or else they will quickly become irrelevant in college football. Yeah, I, I think it, it all points back to Larry Scott for sure. Uh, from... A, the, the conference's financial struggles to be just the product that is on the field week in and week out, and that's under normal circumstances. Just watching the, the product that the Pac-12 was put out over the first two weeks of the regular season, uh, they look like, compared to what we see in the SEC and the ACC, the Big 12, the Big 10, all those conferences, it looks like a completely different game. It looks like completely different kids out there. It looks like this is just kind of an extension of high school football, whereas like the guys in the SEC look like they're ready to go to the pros at any minute. Um, I look at just the the rivalries in the Pac-12 that I would consider to be the, the heritage rivalries. 
Obviously, the Apple Cup is, is in that group. USC, UCLA, uh, Oregon, Oregon State, Stanford, Cal, Arizona, ASU. I, I think those are the rivalries. Oregon and UW probably in that group, too. Uh, mm-hmm. I think those are the rivalries the Pac-12 should have looked at this season and said, we absolutely cannot afford to lose those because those are the games that get us probably the most national interest just in terms of rivalry week geographically. geographically. And the Pac-12 really hasn't done anything to ensure that those rivalries will get played without a hitch, and we're seeing it right here with the Cougs and the Huskies scheduled for next week. Uh I would I would put it right now under 50% possibility of it happening just because of how the Pac-12 handles these COVID cases from school to school, uh, how there really isn't much uniformity. And now you're looking at a, a Coug-Husky game that probably, you know, hopefully will get in, but I'm, I'm not banking on it. Do you think there's a way for the Pac-12 to protect these heritage rivalries and, and to make sure that these games get played? But or, or is there just really no way to protect against it? I mean, look, there's no way to truly figure out what's going to happen in the future, especially with COVID. It's been it changes by the hour, right? And we get new information every every minute and. For me, the the struggle is where was the flexibility, right, Curtis? And you talk about that. Where was the forward thinking of okay, we got to get UW Oregon, we got to get or maybe Oregon USC, we got to get some of these ranked teams playing each other on the national s- stage, get these big big you know heritage rivalries like you talked about. How do we make sure some of these things happen in a season that's going to be all over the place? And the only thing you can do is plan for flexibility. Work in some of these weeks at the end. The SEC voted on that, too, how they they established that week for makeup games that do get postponed. The Pac-12 doesn't have that. They're just straight up declared no contest. They're not not postponed. They're a straight up no contest. And there is a difference because... it's just they won't happen, and they should happen if they're look if they're playing games and they're taking those risks. Figure out a way to be flexible for for it to go awry, and, and you know plan for the worst, hope for the best. You hear that all the time with with any sort of situation. There was no planning. There was no thought put into okay. These games get canceled. What's the ripple effect? Should we allow teams to play these non conference games? And schedule them on their on their own if they were to get canceled. They they just voted on that. Like that. Why wasn't yeah, that a thought this process? Week. This week, Curtis, in in April and in, in May and June and July and August and September, any of those months, take one week. Everyone, sit down. Take one piece of paper and just draw out. Okay, if this gets canceled, should we build in a week in the middle for makeup games and a week at the end for makeup games? Curtis, I came up with that off the top of my head in the last 30 seconds. <laughs> they could Just have easily done that. Yeah. One it, week. That's it. It, it. The way that this season has been handled from really every conference and, and just everything from the top down it shows that the NCA truly doesn't care about the student athletes and the 
coaches and just everything that has gone on this season because they have left everybody to their own devices. It's like, you know, the ship is going down. You're looking to the captain to save you, and the captain's telling the band to keep playing. And it's like, well, this isn't going to help. This isn't going to help at all. And the NCAA has done nothing to help any school out this season and by saying, you know what, we're going to make sure that there's a uniform policy across this you know, college football landscape of ours. And the Pac-12 has taken, I think, the biggest hit of any conference this season. I, I, don't, I don't lump them in with the group of five anymore, or the Power Five conferences. It's the Power Four, and then you've got the Pac-12 sort of Power Four plus one, and, and then maybe you you've got you know the Mountain West and the AAC a little bit lower than that, but I just I don't consider the Pac-12 to be among the Power Five anymore, and it's it's I think mostly responsible the responsibility lies a at Larry Scott, b the university presidents for continuing to employ Larry Scott. Um, it, it just there is so many ways for the Pac-12 to get out of what they've put themselves in. Honestly, I think. By coming back and putting together this sort of like rinky-dink schedule that we've seen may have hurt the conference more than if they had simply said, you know what, we're sitting out 2020. And that stinks to say. It really does. But the reality of the situation is the Pac-12 continues to look more and more like a joke compared to the rest of these conferences as they're able to get games off and the the Pac-12 just simply won't play. I get that you know, public health is number one in these situations. But I'm more concerned with, or at least from a football standpoint, the Pac-12 not allowing themselves any opportunity to make these games up. And really, it just, it has become just a running joke on top of the running joke that is the Pac-12. And it stinks. It really does. Yeah. I, I think the best scenario for this season the only outcome I can see being great for the Pac-12. It's not Oregon making it because they can make it. They can make a run to the to the whatever the championship looks like at the end of the year. If this season truly gets Larry Scott ousted because of how embarrassing it looks, then to me it was worth it. No apple. Cu- if I got to <laughs> sacrifice an apple cup, which probably was going to be a loss anyways, and I struggle with that every year. But if this season can get Larry Scott out and can bring true leadership in, then this was worth it to me. That other, I, I don't want anyone to get sick. I don't want anyone to have long-term damages. That, that, all of that aside, uh, please don't take misconstrue my words. I want everyone to be healthy and, and yeah. all of that. But from an on-field perspective, the best positive that can come from this season now is Larry Scott gets fired because this is embarrassing. Love that take. Love that take. Coming up next, we'll get you a big three in the 11 o'clock hour. But up next, we're going to talk about the Seahawks get back to their game against the Cardinals. And can the defense, from what we saw on Thursday, can that defensive effort propel their season forward beyond just the Cardinals? We'll talk that next year on Seattle Sports Saturday. Seattle Sports Saturdays with Curtis Rogers and Taylor Jacobs. On 710 ESPN Seattle. It wasn't just a throwback performance from the Seahawks offensively where they got that run game going and they kept the turnovers at bay and Russell Wilson wasn't bombing it 45, 50 times a game. 
it was a throwback performance defensively too, and, and it, not just the surprise that it be the Seahawks were able to have the kind of game they did, but also against the opponent that they did it to because the Cardinals offense has been really good this season, not just through the air with DeAndre Hopkins and Christian Kirk and Larry Fitzgerald, but also on the ground. They were the league's best running team coming into Thursday night. The Seahawks hold the Cardinals to, what, 57 yards on the ground, uh, held Kyler Murray under 30 yards rushing, which is no easy task to do. And then, you know, the Sunday night game earlier this season, Seattle had no quarterback hits, no sacks against Kyler Murray, who dropped back, I think, over 50 times in that game. Thursday night, seven quarterback hits, three sacks. Taylor, can they propel what we saw on Thursday from the defense forward the rest of the season? Because I think if Seattle has that kind of defensive performance more regularly, I think then you can start to say, all right, this is a a Super Bowl contending team here in the NFC. I think it's pretty similar to that offensive story we were just talking about about 15 minutes ago, right, Curtis? That if this team gets healthy, I I think they're going to even improve on what we saw on Thursday night because you get uh, Shaq Griffin back on that outside corner spot, right? You truly solidify. You move Trey to the number two receiver, Quentin Dunbar on the three-week IR. What will he look like when he comes back towards the end of the season? So... Then the secondary starts to get really, really solid. And some of those practice squad players who are coming up and contributing, you know, the Ryan Neals, they can contribute as well. They can give some of those players a break. And the defensive coordinators and and play callers can be confident that the drop-off isn't there, that the the depth is truly going to help this team in the long run and that they can rotate players in, keep them healthy. But at the core of that, Curtis, was Carlos Dunlap. And the impact he had, if you look on, if you were on Twitter or just around the Seahawks sort of community towards the end of that game on Thursday, I would say 75% of people thought Dunlap was going to get a big play on that final drive at some point. They were like, he's getting a sack. He's going to force Kyler to do something. And sure enough, the sack that ends the game, Carlos Dunlap. So I think it just goes to show you that this Seahawks team thinks a lot differently than a lot of organizations out there. Uh, look, the, the the Bengals gave him away. And now he's one of the top sack getters in the past two seasons already for the Seahawks. So <laughs> to, to me, a tip of the cap to John Schneider for having the eye and the, and the faith in some of these players and to Pete for getting them into the program, getting them familiar with what they need to do and getting them back on track. Look, they struggled and we heard that he and Ken Norton sat down with the defense and they went through play by play and said, what's your responsibility on this play? And it was almost that eye opening experience of like, this is what I need to focus on. It's just me. And if I do my job, this team will succeed. And now we see these players coming back, doing their jobs. This team will succeed going forward. Uh, yeah, Dunlap, his presence out there has been a revelation. I wrote uh, in my instant reaction on 710sports.com following the game that 
a really fun thing to do right now is compare his 2020 sack total to that of Jadevian Clowney's because I'll put myself in the, in the Jadevian Clowney camp. I wanted the Seahawks to resign him uh, real bad, but mm-hmm. Dunlap has three and a half sacks already with the Seahawks in three games. Clowney has none so far with the Titans. He has not gotten after the quarterback at all this season and Dunlap was a much more affordable option for the Seahawks. Yeah, they had to give away a seventh rounder plus B.J. Finney, but, uh, I mean, I would much rather have paid that price for Dunlap's production than, you know, hamper the salary cap here and pay $14, 15000000 for Jadevi and Clowney because Dunlap has been just incredible since coming over from the Bengals. And uh, I don't know, have you seen enough from him to want his option exercise for next year? It's It's a pretty substantial number, which I think kind of, you know, throws it off a little bit, but from what you've seen, I mean, from what I've seen, I would, I would be leaning towards yes. If I, if I, I'm asked if I want Carlos Dunlap coming back. in Yeah. Yeah. Curtis, if this production continues and he has this type of impact that's felt both, you know, with the statistics, the sacks, the pressures, and also just open it up for other pass rushers, right? Is Jaron Reed getting better looks because they got to think about Dunlap? You know, is LJ Collier finally able to get free because they don't have to clog the middle and he can truly cause some havoc there as well? So I think the ripple effect of having Dunlap there is massive. And yes, Curtis, I think if if this continues or let's just say if the season were to end today and they were we were to talk, go straight into the offseason, I'm thinking about picking up that option and there's other players other dollar amounts that i would shift around in order to make that happen yes the pay is is quite a bit for his age and but to me if you can you can't really put a price on the impact that he's having on this defense because they look completely different when he's on yeah, he just gives this defensive line so much juice. And I think the, the rest of the defense, too, is building off of uh, what Dunlap's effort has been on, on the defensive side of the ball. I think uh, Snacks Harrison also, I mean, he hasn't done a tremendous amount in terms of in-game production, but you know, I think just his personality, his leadership, uh, he's been around the NFL for you know about a decade plus now. I mean, that's valuable to a lot of guys on the defensive line. Guys like LJ Collier, Rasheem Green, there's a lot of youth there. Daryl Taylor, who we heard this week is is getting closer and closer to coming back as well. That's another guy. I mean, second-round pick, that's no joke. That's somebody who you expect to contribute when healthy. Uh, If Daryl Taylor can come back and give Seattle just anything, I think that's going to be huge, too, in in the season second half. what was the most encouraging thing you saw from the Seahawks on defense against the Cardinals? Um, I mean, look, they stopped Kyler Murray. They had the, the biggest task maybe in the league of stopping a guy who can throw and run with the best of them, maybe even with Russell and some of the all-time best mobile quarterbacks. 
And they, they lived up to the billing. They did it. They won in those trenches. They got off the field, forcing those three and outs, letting the offense go out there. And a great text here from the 406. And I would totally agree that the defense was able to stay fresh a lot of the time by getting the offense back on the field, getting that run game for the offense back on the field. So Hyde and Russell can keep that clock rolling and the defense can get over there, stay fresh. They're not on the field for these you know, 12 drive um, sets multiple times in a row, right? They had a couple, and yeah, that was when uh, the Cardinals really had their comeback. But to me, it was a complete team effort. And the reason why I'm so confident and feel so great about it is all phases of the ball are contributing to one another and playing for one another. And when they do that, this this engine rolls and the cogs continue to turn. And this team looks like they can be unbeatable if they're playing at their full potential. Yeah, looking at the time of possession in that game, Seahawks controlled it for 35 minutes to Arizona's Ooh. 25 in the game. I mean, that that's just a, a, a testament to, to everything that went right for the Seahawks. A, the defense was able to get off the field when they needed to, and, and the offense held on to the ball for, for much longer than Arizona was able to. So it worked great for Seattle on, on Thursday. Hopefully over the next couple of weeks here, we'll see that formula continue to work. We'll talk more about that. Uh, coming up at about 11.30, just kind of the road that lies ahead for the Seahawks. Very favorable. How are they going to be able to take advantage of that? But in this next hour, we'll get you a big three, including a big week in the NBA with the draft and free agency getting underway. And also, one Mariner, one former Mariner, finds himself in trouble again with Major League Baseball. We'll talk that next year. Seattle Sports Saturday.